Hi, I'm Jeremy Leslie. Welcome to episode 29 of the Mag Culture Podcast, a special focused on a single magazine. As ever, I'm speaking to you from the Mag Culture shop in Clerkenwell, London, EC1. What's different this time is that we'll be heading west to Marylebone, London, W1, to meet our guest. Tyler Brulé has founded two major magazines that grew to become publishing brands. The first was Wallpaper, the design lifestyle magazine he launched in 1996. After leaving that in 2002, he went on to launch Monocle in 2007. In fact, exactly 15 years ago today as I record this. Wallpaper was remarkable for many reasons, but perhaps most importantly in terms of today's indie magazines, it both identified and then developed a new international market for magazines. A specialist English language title need not be tied to a home market, but reach further across the world and build an international audience. Monocle has followed that same route. Its largest market is the US and it does very well in Portugal. And now, 15 years after its launch, it is the figurehead publication behind a series of other magazines. There's The Forecast, The Entrepreneurs, Confect, a stream of newspapers, as well as a 24-hour digital radio station, a book series, live events and shops. I spoke to Tyler as celebrations were beginning to mark those 15 years. Welcome to Studio One at Midori House, Marylebone, Monocle's London base, where I'm joined by the magazine's founder and editorial director, Tyler Brule. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for, I don't know, thanks, for, uh, thanks to you, thanks to me, I don't know. Anyway, welcome, well, we're good both to see here. you. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I, I've sat here many a times uh, to record the stack, and we've always, you know, it's customary to take a look through a few recent magazines. And I'd like to start off turning the tables on you and, and asking for some tips Sure. Of what you've been spotting uh, What recently. I've been looking at. I mean, there's actually really a, a quite an interesting title, which I, I spotted on the Swiss newsstand. It's a German magazine. Uh, and it's a spin-off um, of a, a very established uh, German women's title called Brigitte, a, 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 you know, a, a title which has been with us decades. It's probably one of the original, you would say, sort of more upper middle mass market uh, magazines, a title really of scale from from Germany, which was about lifestyle. It, it had fashion and recipes and living. But they've done a new magazine called Leben, Living. And it's it just grabbed me on the supermarket newsstand. I didn't have to go to a specialist to mm-hmm. find it. I was just, I was at the grocery store and probably it's the market where a magazine like this will do very well. But there was something, Jeremy, about the cover it, it was the use of typography. It was this this very punchy yellow. Uh, and, and there was something about partly the graphics, uh, but also the way they just used the grid on the cover, which was mm-hmm. incredibly arresting and, and modern. And that so that's that's one of the titles I've seen okay. recently, which and really appeals. Is that a new launch? It's a new launch, okay. yes. Okay. And uh, but you know, but it's 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 probably nothing maybe for the you know for the shelves of of mag culture, but at at the same time, I think it it shows a level of reinvention of pushing forward from a major publisher. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which is always helpful. Always useful, see. right? And we don't see enough of. <laughs> no, indeed. And that's kind of maybe the opposite moment to turn back the clock 15 years. Congratulations on achieving that landmark anniversary. And you also arrived the day that literally, I, I flew in from Zurich and then the plane must have arrived from Hanover and you will see in a moment uh, the we've got You've five got, we've got five copies literally of hot issue, off the press right, okay, of the issue. So okay. we'll, uh, we'll well, grab I'm keen one. to to come to that. But right now, I want to turn back to 15 years ago, and what your memories of that time are. What were the highlights? The lowlights? What I mean, 
is obviously a very exciting time doing what we just heard you discuss about that German title, uh, launching a new magazine onto the into the mainstream, into in, into everywhere. Talk me through the process. Sure. What happened? <laughs> well, if we go back 15 years, that is really the launch period uh, for, for the magazine. And and of course, I can, and maybe it is, it's hindsight, but it's only highlights. I, I can't think of any lowlights. It was, it was just such an incredible time. And in the same way that I'm, you know, reflecting about just you know, this 15th anniversary issue arriving, I can remember the truck pulling up to Boston Place, uh, and us. We were receiving those those first boxes that came from Cornwall and just cracking them open and everyone having that collective moment of of looking at the magazine, knowing that a few days later uh, we we hired the ballroom at Claridge's. We had Coop fly in uh, from Sweden to perform. Uh, yeah, yeah, it was it was just it was it was really incredible and it felt like. Yeah, it was a proper launch, mm-hmm. um, and and all of the advertisers, all the contributors, everyone who needed to be there was was there. So it was mm-hmm. it was yeah, a remarkable time, two thousand seven, knowing that where we were sailing into as well. And even then, it was a very large launch for its time, probably one of the biggest of that year. Probably, and and because it did mark a, a really fascinating moment. Of course, everything that we saw happening in a digital space, and if if I think of one low light, it wasn't a low light. 15 years ago, it was probably 16 and a half years ago when we were trying to raise money for the magazine. And and even then, uh, we were going out and talking to potential investors and people were saying, but it's a print magazine. Why, why would you do something in print? Because you should only be doing something in digital. There is no future for, for print. So that's kind of interesting as well, knowing this this question comes up again and again. That was 16 and a half, 17 years ago when we were talking to VC firms, we were talking to other media companies. And that was probably the, the, the low point when people just saw that there was there was no future in, in any of this. Why would you that? No, we're not going to invest in your product. If it was fully digital, we'd be behind it. Uh, but, you know, but of course, we we pressed ahead and we found people who believed in what we were doing. Was it as simple as that? I mean, did you just manage to keep going and find the right people? Or, or, or was there a particularly persuasive point that you discovered? I, I think... On, on one side, the, the more doors that close, uh, the more convinced you are. And uh, th- there was there was one moment, though, where I was talking to the owner of one of the world's, uh, they, they continue to be one of the world's biggest uh, publishers of glossy magazines. And this gentleman said to me, I, we, had, we had a pretty much, we had a full dummy as well, Jeremy. We knew what the paper stock was going to be, the trim size, everything. It was, it was a pretty fully fledged dummy. And he said, because I love this, he said. It's it's a magazine that I, I really see myself in it. I would read it. I know you would read it. I know all of our friends would read it, but nobody else would read it. And I thought, well, that's a bit curious. And that was probably just one of those statements when I, I walked out of his office. And I thought, well, there's there are many more people and perhaps many more like-minded people uh, than maybe just uh, the clutch of individuals that, that we know. Um, I, I, I thought it was a bit of an arrogant statement. And that was something that, that that pushed me forward. Was it easy to go and find all of the people who got behind um, that first issue? Not really, because there was there was this moment when there was a, a family, and as you know, we we were of course running our agency, went creative at the time, and there was a moment when one of our clients, uh, she was uh, she was working on we were working on a big property project, uh, branding project for this family in, in Barcelona. And she came to our office uh, on Boston Place, 
And we already we already had the agency upstairs, and downstairs there was we were all set to launch a magazine because when we took over that building, we thought, well, let's just get the extra desk, let's get the, the extra phones and the lights. And she she came in on a Saturday to for the presentation, and and as she left, she said, "What what's happening down here? Why is it all empty? What's going on?" And I said, "Well, we got this idea for a magazine." And she said, well, she goes, is it a new version of wallpaper? And I said, no. And I, I explained what it was going to be. And she said, okay, do you have a business plan? I said, of course. And so I ran upstairs and I got the deck, gave it to her. And she said, I'm going to give this to my CEO and I get back to, to Barcelona tonight or tomorrow. And her colleague, her CEO, called on the Monday and said, Maria loves the idea. She said, but there's one condition. No other media companies, uh, no venture capital no financial institutions. We're a family company, and Maria will put in a million pounds into this project, but it can only be other families who invest. So that was the challenge, mm-hmm. was to then go around yeah. and try to find other families. But over time, it took us a little bit longer, but we did. And I'm interested, I mean, you mentioned wallpaper. Uh, obviously, that was your pre- the previous project, and there was a gap between the two. And I think perhaps people thought when they, they heard you were launching a new magazine, they would instantly assume, oh, it's the new wallpaper. Clearly wasn't. But what happened? And what, what, how do you view the gap between the two, the difference between the two? In many ways, that period, it was, and it was five years, because when I finished the wallpaper, I, you know, this is probably one of those lessons learned. I went for the cash and the very long five-year non-editorial, or editorial non-compete. Uh-huh. Five years is, is is a long time, but and and it was interesting because it was almost to the day that we we launched that my my five years uh, was up and um, and it was just and I decided to get the magazine going and in that period, I you know we were running the agency and and it was a moment to really focus on running the agency and to build up brands for others. And, but but in a sense, did that five years of of non compete condition almost allow you to have five years to think and think and hone and hone? Yeah, absolutely, and to, and to work on other brands, whether they were airlines or whether we were working with retailers. So there was also this moment of being able to step back and understand and to also learn from other companies and companies that had a lot of money to invest in developing or, or relaunching their brands. And and that was, I think that was just a great period. And that allowed us, I think, to probably come to market with the strength that we did in, in 2007. So it was this learning period and probably, as you said, a moment to, to step back a little bit. I started writing a column for a Swiss newspaper. Uh, the FT started then. So a lot of other things were also at play within that period, which, which was very useful. And, and also going back to, you, to what you were saying about the, uh, the uh, uh, senior member of, uh, of the team at, at, at a publisher sort of bit, almost mockingly saying, oh, it's only for us. Well, this this magazine's wonderful, but it's only for us. There's a lot of us around, but at that launch stage, how were you positioning it? Who did you have in mind as the reader, as the consumer, the person that was going to buy into what, by its very nature, was going to be mm. a big brand? Sure. So I think we have to look back at what was happening. 2005 was the moment that the the dummy came together and 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 we we knew what the flat plan was going to look like there was this real sense of what this was going to be i don't think there was a sense it was going to take us 2 years uh, to get it to, to newsstand but when we we thought about the the core reader and what was going on in the world so we had the rise of low cost carriers i think there was it's funny to say this now but there was a real sense of the of the eu project uh, uh really coming together that people could pinball between other markets that you could live in Barcelona and and be back in London at the weekends 
we, we were moving around. Uh, high speed rail was happening. It was you know it was Euro. All of these different things were, were were I think in their groove at that point. So how could we chronicle? How could we be a title for people who were moving across borders, who were living lives in different places, who were exploring opportunities? That was that's that was the the individual that we were thinking about. It was. That was out of London, but it felt very European, um, and and of course also global at the same time. But that sense of of Europe being the core of uh, of of our of our brand, uh, and then obviously with you know dipping into other markets, and that sense of going to other markets that were maybe a little bit forgotten, mm-hmm. less explored, uh, and, and that was what we started to work with. And you, interestingly to me, you not mentioned Japan, which always seems a key reference point. And and I think. And there, there's the cue, because you know, we we launched with a, a Japanese uh, pilot from the Japanese Self Defense Forces on that first cover, and and I guess there's there's a couple of cues out of that. I think that it surprised people. A lot of people were like, okay, it's not a design driven cover. It's not urbanism based. It was a geopolitical story. This is a very sober affair, and and also and and Japan as well. So there was a lot of questions, I think, around that that first issue. But when I go back to thinking about places less explored, it, to me, I, I was already obsessed with Japan at that time. Japan was the world's second biggest economy. But from a media lens, you know, whether it was the BBC, whether it was the Times, doesn't matter. Didn't matter who it was. Then Japan was always this oddity. Of course, people were covering the ups and downs of the Japanese economy. But then, from a pop culture point of view, it was always just a bit strange. Every time you'd get a story, it was always something which was just very superficial because it was a new toy that was the yeah. latest craze. It, 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 was, it was kind of weird and wacky. World yeah, or, and that, and that yeah. was always the fodder of, of probably what various news bureaus had to produce for their news desks elsewhere in the world. And we just knew there was so much more. And from a commercial point of view as well, it it was the world's second biggest economy. So also that meant that there was probably over time going to be advertising and, and a market uh, for us there as well. And over the 15 years, I mean, if, if, if we look at uh, the, 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 there's a more recent issue uh, of, of the magazine just sitting here, it has changed. The front cover has changed. That That first one was quite austere in its presentation. Uh, and I think my impression on first seeing it, on its first arrival, was that it was a very serious... Yeah, austere was the word. It was very transparent in its tone, but nonetheless quite kind of proper and serious. And it very, it felt like it was trying very quite hard to be different to wallpaper, which was always kind of style orientated and, and perhaps um, dismissed slightly for that. But but so it was a kind of serious magazine in that sense. But in, I know I've I've spent uh, we, we've done a few events together. We spent some time together, and I know that the, the within Monocle, it's a very warm family-like experience and it seems to me the magazine's become more like that as it's grown does that i think that's fair because yes and i think we had to there had to be a marker jeremy at the very beginning that this was a departure from wallpaper this you were coming into something which was completely new it wasn't glossy this was matte it felt more bookish um and and i think going back to japan there were a lot of things that we saw happening on the japanese newsstand uh, or bookshelves as well that we wanted to emulate that we wanted to have some level of, of respect and, and and acknowledgement for. So there were a number of things I think that we wanted to to deliver. And I guess part of that was also learning, yeah, just learning from other brands, the brands that we'd even worked with uh, on the agency side, that this had to draw a bit of a line in the sand. And so that's why it was, it was, it felt very strict and austere. A lot of people said it felt 
very academic when it came out and people talked about it, that it, it reminded them of foreign affairs and other things. And, and that was good. And as you said, but then we, we sort of turned the temperature up over, over a while uh, or over a period of time. And that maybe took, you know, 18 months, two years. To, you know, then it started to move in the direction of, of the title that you're, that you're looking at now. And also, of course, started to, of course, to, to grow properly at the same time. And the and uh, do do you feel the tone of voice has changed along with that? I mean, we talk about the visuals and the feel, but it's it's interesting. I think on one side we've always wanted to look our reader in the eye, and and whether that reader is living in Vancouver or they're in Hobart uh, or, or they happen to be in Cape Town, there was this this sense of of wanting the reader, and we want the reader to, and the listener uh, to feel that they're part of. Uh, a global discussion that they are part of of a community. You're not alone wherever you live in the world. And maybe, yeah, you feel culturally remote or you or you feel politically remote, uh, but it's we wanted the sense of 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 yeah, I guess a feeling that you're part of of something which is bigger um and and broader. Has the tone changed? I think early on we were delivering a lot of of, of just pure reportage. It was, there were a lot of reports. We continue, of course, to be highly visual, and, and that's you know, a big part of what we do. But over time, we've we've certainly injected more opinion. Uh, I think you see now, because we have the rhythm of, of course, a 24-hour radio station, because we, uh, we certainly have daily newsletters, you have to go into a space where people sort of generally know where you sit. But, and it, it is interesting probably since the last time we saw each other. It's funny, some days, you know, we'll receive a series of emails because Andrew writes something or Andrew Muller writes something or I write something and people say, God, you know, you're really like, you're so far on the left. It's, you're too liberal. You know, I, I, I this just does, this jars with me. And then some people say, you're, you're too far on the right. Uh, and and I, I always say to Andrew, we sort of smile, we say, then we're doing a good job. I said, if, if people can kind of <laughs> see both sides because we want to be down the middle, we want mm-hmm. to be, and not to sit on the fence either. I think we, we you know, we, we see ourselves, we're very pro-business business. Um, but, you know, at, at the same time, you know, we're, we're not sort of, you know, massive fans of, 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 of too many subsidies, um, you know, for the economy or, or, or society in general. So it's, there, there's interesting friction. So I'd say we would, we've definitely sort of moved partly because of just the amount of output that we have, because there's a rolling radio station and there are newsletters. And, and I think we probably did find that people, readers, that is, they were pushing us a little bit for also, you know, well, what do, what do you think? What you know? It's fine uh, yeah. for you to cover it, but what's you know? What is Tom Edwards' view on this, mm-hmm. or what is Josh's, or what is Sophie Groves? That for me is one of the key differentiations with, with Monocle is um, that unlike so much that we have now, where I mean, from the government down, everyone's just waiting to see what's going to be popular and then follow the, the cues. There's an element of being prepared to lead, being prepared. To, this is the right way to do things. This is how things should be done. Both in 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 the in the details of day to day interactions with with you and personally and as an organisation, but also in the magazine. It's there's a sort of etiquette to what you do. It's well. Thank you for recognising that. It, I'm not saying <laughs> that we that we get it right all the time. And I would actually like to get back to a bit more of that. Not in that. You know, dictatorial sense that this is the way you should go. I think one thing we we're missing a little bit in the magazine, and I think people misinterpreted it in the beginning as well. We don't do as many whatever, the perfect department stores. There was, I think, there was a moment probably seven or eight years ago when it started to taper off a little bit, where we would 
you know, we'd commission a great Japanese illustrator and then we would we would work with a series of our writers to conjure up what we thought was what a, the perfect neighborhood should look like and and with solutions around that or the perfect high street uh, or the perfect airport. And, and I'm, you know, these have turned into posters and and they've been much discussed parts of the magazine. I would say now we've become probably a little bit more serious, still tackling the same themes, but are we doing it uh, with a, you know a, a wonderful illustrator from Japan, Brazil, or somewhere else to bring that to life? No, but yes, it's always been a part of what we've you know we've wanted to do because I think it's so easy to go and review something and to kick the shit out of it and say that this is is something that this is just this is rubbish. And then have no solution. And I think we've always tried to be solution-driven somehow. That there is this, that there's an optimism, uh, no matter what it is. And not in a naive bunnies and rainbows type of way, but just that there is, that that hopefully we're able to find the positive in, in most things we're doing. But again, of course, not not in a in a naive stance either. But I think that's the case uh, in terms of your uh, the, the production of the material that you make as well. I mean, I was looking back at issue one and um, uh, in your sort of int- in, well, it wasn't an introductory letter at that stage. It was on the final page of the mag- of the magazine. But you you, you had a kind of uh, a, a manifesto, a list of points, and, and, and one of them you listed. Um, you wanted it, the magazine to well, you wanted it to do your bit to raise the bar which we've discussed in a sense. But he also wanted it to be an o- oasis away from celebrities and low production values, which I, t- I took as a kind of um, criticism of other launches and other magazines that were kind of struggling at the time of, the, of, of your launch. But you have, you've established that now. Your, your magazines, I mean, the products are all of a certain quality and that remains important. Ab- absolutely. I think, I think more so. And, and the great thing is we're, we're, we're speaking to a specific audience with, within your podcast right now. We also have to look back at what was happening in in that 2005 to 2008 period as well. What was happening on the newsstand? We had the rise of digital photography. So I, I, I've always said to Rich, our creative director, we're going to look back at that moment in time when I, I, probably a lot of people who are managing editors, uh, you know, CFOs who were in charge of budgets who thought, okay, you've got to go and shoot everything on digital right now. But no one knew how to no one knew what to do at the repro house. It was just, let's get these digital files in. How much manipulation do they need? You know, have they been shot with enough memory? There was something that happened in that period with, with a number of mass market magazines where if we look back now, it, everything was smudgy. Everyone looked like they had a skin condition. Uh, everything was heavily pixelated in a way. It was just, it, it was it was poor. And, and that was why at, at, at that period, I said, wherever possible, we need to shoot on film. And, and it's great, actually, even looking at the current issue that we still have stories which are shot on film. And and let's make sure that we're investing, working with the best possible printers. And if we're working with illustrators, can we still get the original art in as well? And and we've tried to stick to that, you know, where possible. Of course, a lot of illustrators have now moved into a digital world, as many other people have. But uh, as you said, we've always wanted to, to try to keep the bar as high as we possibly can. But I think alongside, I mean... It, it, it's it's lovely to try and remain as analog as possible in some respects, but but also, the 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 technology now is available to address the problems that digital caused, and and, and everything is is so digitally orientated that it's it's kind of uh, with the right profiles, the right the right printers, it, it moves smoothly through. It needs it needs care and attention, but um, and that kind of leads into the kind of the growth of the of the, of the magazine since. I mean, what what was your aim in launching it in terms of 
how many countries did you want to be in? How many readers were you aiming at? And, and at what point did you achieve that? I don't think we've achieved all of it. Uh, and, and of course, we're having this conversation uh, off, off the back of, of this extraordinary time that we've been through and all of the challenges. I would say actually not so much in terms of even getting the magazine to press, but getting the magazine out around well, the world. Absolutely. So, and I think, so that's why it's, it's interesting because I, I, you know, just at that moment, whatever, two and a half years ago, suddenly we were, we were doing better in South Africa, let's say, as an, as an example. Finally, after 12 years, like, that was just coming good. And then actually then suddenly South Africa becomes, you know, an incredibly difficult market where we couldn't get magazines to the market at all in this, in this period. So I think one of the curious things is we're coming, we're off the back of this remarkable period. And if I think about, you know, the places that I, I want to see us on sale, uh, where we should be heard, etc., you know, we're still not, we're still not there. Whether we're, whether we're looking at twelve and a half years into this or fifteen years now, uh, I don't think we've managed to to achieve um, mm-hmm. you know all all that we should. You know, I wanted to have to be in a position we were like where we'd be selling a solid you know, hundred thousand issues every month. We haven't achieved that. I still believe we can, even despite challenges of newsstand, logistics, all of these things. You know, we've, we've largely been in a world of 80,000 copies around the world. Uh, and, you know, I think coming out of this, I, I do believe that, and we've got a couple of tricks up our sleeve, uh, to, make, to make that happen uh, as well. So there's, there's a lot, there's a lot, there's still so much to do. And, that, and that's what drives you crazy because you go to a, a party or you bump into someone at a train station or whatever and you say, oh, this is what I do and and you introduce yourself and they've never heard of you but yet you think, you're one of the people I thought about back in 2005 and you still don't know about us. One of the places I associate the buyer of Monocle picking up a copy is at the airport, at the station. I mean, I mean this this has been the crisis for the last two years, of course, but what how, what was the secret to weathering that? That must have been a really tough couple of years for you, uh, Monocle in particular. It was a tough period for sure, but I think some of the things that helped uh, was taking a punt with this very medium that uh, surrounds us at the moment, which was audio. So if I look back to a decade ago, when we, we not say we had a choice, but we knew there was that, there was that period that, that a lot of traditional publishers, and I guess we would be considered a traditional publisher, where you started to have a conversation with a big advertiser, whether it was the brand directly or the agency, and people would talk about your digital strategy, what were you doing? And, and we have to think back, that, that period was, of course, it was the dawn of, of the tablet. And that was really, I would say, the, the big challenge. So, you know, a major global agency would say, okay, we want to, you know, we've got lots of money to spend on anything digital. So, you know, what, what do you have for us? And I, one day we, we came back to, to the office and I think I'd, I'd been to a round of agency meetings with our publisher and, and I thought, you know, it's, I don't, is, it, is it right for us to go to this almost A4 size screen with our magazine? Is our reader going to to be there? Don't they love what we're doing? And we had a conversation, and we said, "Well, we could do digital, but maybe it should be audio." And and I just I thought that there was something there's something very intimate. You know, a magazine is is personal, and I might lend it to you. You'll give it back. You may not. Um, and and I think that there's something about the radio experience, uh, which is also very personal. You have your presenter that you like on that program, and it's a conversation between the two of you. And other people might dip in and out. And so we, you know, we 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 took a we took a punt. Um, 
here we are 10 years later um on the, on the a little over 10 years later on on the audio side you know we we got this up and running yeah, almost about 5 years into the into the lifespan of the magazine at that point and through the pandemic that was this was something which was well it facilitated uh, of course a level of outreach that it just couldn't happen with the magazine because there were logistical problems. We we never skipped an issue. We might have you know missed our on sale by a couple of days here and there, but we were able to certainly push through with the title. But of course, there were massive issues about getting the magazine because of logistics around the world. And this was a way of being in people's ears, um, and also for, a way for people to to engage in a different way. And of course, that was. Um, that was for us. That wasn't just a question of, of of reach and and being part of the conversation. We were also able to turn that into interesting sponsorship deals as well. And we had a number, which was my next question. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the holy grail is to make money from digital, and you do make money from the radio station. We do make, <laughs> yeah, that that is true. So, and this was a challenge. I mean, if I go back to the tablet, I still don't think had we pumped mm-hmm. in hundreds of thousands or whatever it would have cost. To uh, to get a, a really proper razzle dazzle tablet up and running, I well, maybe maybe we would maybe we wouldn't be here, but I don't think that would have propelled us uh, through the last two years. But what did happen though was, you know, if you would have asked me, yeah, whatever thirty six months ago, would Novartis would Novartis have been a a brand partner, an advertiser um, within the Monocle landscape? Uh, maybe, but um, but we just ended up, you know. Having a fantastic deal and continue to have a continue to have a great relationship with them. If you would have asked me if we would have been working with a big insurance company like Allianz, maybe, uh, but they became a big partner as well. And it was purely because of this this mm-hmm. medium it was, it was because we were doing audio. So I think we had enough time, and maybe because we took this bet on on this form of digital versus something which was solely screen based. Um, that we were able to mitigate, I think, a lot of the other elements that came with this pandemic. And, and I think it's fair to say, when you look at the sort of general publishing landscape, it was a wise decision to give the iPad a miss. I mean, I think, you know, I mean, there are exceptions, but they, you know, the rule t- tends to be that most of them have faded away one way or the other after quite a lot of money has been poured down them. Um, so I, I was always behind that when you, when you decide that. It always made a, a complete sense. But, there's, but that sort of... Um, the relationship with digital extends to sort of not wanting to do social media, not interested in that side of things. Tell, tell me about, a, bit, a bit about that. because I mean, We can make a whole other podcast um, <laughs> out of that. It, it's funny because it's, well, it's not funny. If I think back to also maybe those those naysayers, uh, the, the potential investors who didn't want to be part of this, who only wanted to be in a digital world, who uh, only wanted to, to, to take a bet on something which uh, was, was going to, of course, you know, be in uh, a social landscape, even though people weren't really talking about that at, at the time. I saw a number of things happening. And when there was early pressure uh, around Facebook, and of course, shortly after around, around Twitter, I, I just, again, I always talked to my team. And and there was there was a big discussion. There continues to be a big discussion around it. And I said, mark my words. I said, these companies are not our friends. And I said they will turn into our competitors and they will eat our lunch. And I get it that it's great for exposure. I really understand all of those things. But also, we're in that sort of. I think the curious thing about us, Jeremy, is we're, we're not we're not a tiny player. We're not a big multinational either. But we do play we, we do play for quite big budgets in the ad space. And my, my feeling was 
that if you know suddenly uh, you know we start to get into bed with all of these social media players, etc., and then people are really measuring you know every single click, every single view, that that we would be out of business very very soon. Uh, and and I and I just I guess probably because I'm stubborn and because this is uh, it's a family venture, we're not a big company, and maybe for now anyway we can afford to. To take this point of view, I, I, I said maybe at, at some point there's going to be some big international tribunal um, where they're going to pull all those big publishers together and say, why did you sort of aid and abet, you know, all of those big companies from the U.S. West Coast when you should have actually gone your own direction? And I thought, well, at least we'll go our own direction um, and, and we're not going to be part of that uh, that, that tribunal. Yeah. I, and I, I just, I guess it's... Um, yeah, I've just always been very skeptical. And I'm listen, I'm not totally right. Listen, I'm sure we could probably be, maybe we could reach 100,000 if we were on lots of those other channels. But when I say channels, I guess my, my one concern today is I, I think people go into a social space and they think that they've experienced how great Brazilian Vogue is or they, they, they think they have a great experience of the Financial Times or The Economist, whoever's in that, that territory but I often wonder, do they venture outside? If you're in an Instagram world, I think a lot of people, not think I know of a lot of people, who just stay in that lane and they, oh yeah, I saw that on Instagram, but you didn't go and have the economist experience around it. You didn't go and, yeah. you just read the stand first that was there, or you, went, you maybe you clicked on the film, I don't know. And so that's my my concern um, more than ever now that uh, that these become their own channels in their own right. And you are but a, a commercial spot. You're not even the full two-hour movie uh, within that channel. Fair enough. I, I, I just wonder whether it seems to me that the, the sort of community of people that you're addressing would be able to take, take advantage in a positive manner. I think, I think the, the, I understand everything you've said about the West Coast and the, the, the uh, clearly... Uh, negative influence that so much of 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 the output and and, and the advances that they're processing uh, cause, but the there is still you know to me some of the, some forms of social media, Instagram be, being a good example. The, the best examples of Instagram are are about community building, just as a magazine is, and and there, there's great synergy between the two. To, to, to as, as I see it, but I, I I I agree with that. I just wonder is it is it still just a community though that lives within Instagram, uh-huh. as opposed to what has to happen at the end of the day? They have to come and buy Monocle. They have to commit to spending one hundred and fifty pounds, dollars, or Swiss francs. Uh, that's that's how we continue to grow and thrive. And of course, we need the advertisers as well. So I have a big question mark about it. You know what? I I could still be convinced that maybe that is the right channel for us, but not today. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> London Printers Park Communications play a key part in the independent publishing scene, helping ambitious magazine makers turn their dreams into reality. Take a look at the latest issues of Repost, ID, Kindling, and new launch Al Hire to get a sense of what's possible. Very different magazines, all beautifully produced. Park share our belief in reaching for the highest creative standards while working in the most environmentally friendly and sustainable manner possible. Check their website for details. Search Park Communications. Just like Mag Culture, Park love magazines and we're proud to have them sponsor this podcast. 
one channel that remains so the heart of it all of course is print and we talked about what you um how you cope with the pandemic one thing you did was to launch a new magazine we did yes we launched, <laughs> which, we launched which some people might think was a, a yeah quite, I, well, quite it, absurd thing to do but uh, confect arrived um two years ago now it well, it'll be it'll be two years. Uh, yeah, I guess yeah. It's two years since we got you know we, we started to get underway. It's just it's a, well, it's a, it's a, but on newsstand, it's only fifteen, sixteen months uh, since we, we we arrived on newsstand. There there was an opportunity. I think we we've been talking for quite a while about um, more food. Uh, we we knew that we probably hit a ceiling, depending on on what what party you go to or what survey you read. Um, is our female readership, is it 15%, is it 25%? But this feeling, it should have been more. Um, and then there was just a lot... And, then and, and that is the breakdown, is it? It's that male-orientated. Absolutely. I, I mean, I would say on the, the scientific side, it's probably 15 17% if you go by readers, readership surveys. I think if you come to a party and then you see how many women are at the party and that they're also readers and maybe they just don't like filling out surveys, it's a little bit higher. But it's it, listen, it's it's not going past thirty percent, that's for sure. And and yet at those parties and when we're out meeting our readers and when we're doing our real social media, then I was you know I was hearing time and again, I wish you had more women's fashion. I wish I I, I wish there was just a bit more. Um, of a feminine side to the magazine, et cetera. And, uh, and that became Confect. It was a conversation with, uh, with Sophie Grove and, and a number of people that came together. And, and then there was also this sense of, 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 well, the name and everything of just being in the middle of Europe and so many of the magazines that we like and, and the importance of print and, and maybe thinking about the world of fashion so often it has to come from Paris and Milan uh, and, and New York, but knowing there's all of these great things that are happening in Vienna and Zurich and Munich and elsewhere... And um, yeah, during the height of everything, uh, we we went out and managed to get in front of advertisers and um, and paper companies, and um, and here we are. And issue issue six is going to be well. They're upstairs right now, working on it. And uh, it, it, it's it's an interesting project to my eye because it does seem, as you described it, to be a very European one, and um, it seems sort of somehow more at home in well for instance in in your you're now based in Zurich and it feels very much at home there and perhaps more so than in London I don't does, does that is it that extreme I, I don't think it's that extreme but it, it's it's a deliberate project I think to to reflect a, a lifestyle going out for long walks and to shine a spotlight on parts of Europe that have long been forgotten uh, that people have regimes Going back to maybe what you were saying a little bit earlier about thinking about the start of Monocle, I think Confect is also about it's well mannered. Uh, it's it's a bit older as well. I mean, it's it's not trying to be the coolest, newest, uh, or, or it's not trying to cover the coolest and the newest necessarily. Um, when when you think of fashion, uh, it it is more about I think recognizing and understanding a woman who's definitely north of thirty five. Uh, and and being very being very proud of that fact um, as as well, and then as you said, we we had Confect, and then was also been interesting about the the last year and a half is also we really went back into newspapers again uh, as well, and and that was and the, and there'll be there will be more, but if I look back, you know, on on the last year, uh, we shouldn't just put it down to digital because we 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 chose some opportunities with newspapers around major events. The Venice Biennale for architecture last year, uh, for Salone 
And then also just before Christmas as well, when you know, the world, again, was opening, was it not going to open? Was it going to be a better Christmas um, than, than the Christmas of, of, of 2020? Let's hope so. And, and there was an opportunity, again, to go and use paper, that, just that amazing expanse of real estate that you get, and advertisers and readers and airlines as well, as they were starting to put paper on board, um, all liked this. Um, and that is... Yeah, that's one of the exciting things about, I guess, sometimes being your own operation, that we're not part of a corporate, that if there's enough money in the piggy bank, let's just, well, let's go try it. it. Yeah. yeah, let's go and yeah. do it. And and when you look at the wider publishing scene at the moment, who who else would you pinpoint as doing it, doing things right? Hmm. Well, when I, if I think about numbers, if I think about the business side of things, I'm always happy, you know, when I talk to Christoph Amend. Uh, the editor of Zeit magazine, mm-hmm. and of course he is the editor of uh, now he's the editorial director uh, of of their of their supplements and everything they are doing. But you know, here is a newspaper I've always regarded as being incredibly modern. It's a proper, probably the last of the great broadsheets. It comes out on a Thursday. It mm-hmm. is a newspaper really designed to be enjoyed across the weekend or even an, an entire week, and and they're. Let's not talk about digital numbers. We're talking purely people going to the newsstand or having a subscription to the physical paper. I mean, their their numbers. You know, we're talking double digits. I believe twenty, thirty percent uplift in the newspaper, the physical mm-hmm. newspaper. And why is that? Because it's just there's a great investment in journalism. There's an there's there's been a commitment and an understanding not to downsize. But to, let's, if you're going to be on paper, then celebrate being on paper. What's the point of then mm-hmm. suddenly being, uh, you know, an A5 size newspaper? And, and also launch. I mean, I mean, alongside the, the the weekly magazine that comes with the newspaper, they've been launching other absolutely uh, food magazine, local uh, editions. Yeah, the, and then and then the, yeah, the the internationalization. They've done things in Switzerland. So I, I've I have enormous respect um, for for Mr. Von Holtzbrink, but but of course also. Um, who's who's the the proprietor? But uh, but certainly also um, for for what Christoph is is doing, I really look to them. I'm still inspired, and it's driving me crazy that I've not been able to to make my way to Japan for two years. Hopefully, that's going to change soon. But my goodness, do I love when the box arrives from our Tokyo office, and <laughs> uh, and, and there's just the latest issue of Casabrutus mm-hmm. uh, or Pen mm-hmm. or whatever it is. Um, and it's just great to see that uh, that the Japanese newsstand continues uh, continues to thrive. Uh, and then I've been I've been intrigued also a little bit by by what I've um, been, and it's been a curious market for us. But but Portugal, and I think when when I saw you in Zurich, Portugal has been really interesting in this period because you know it's it's held up incredibly well. It's a small market, uh, but it does very well for us because the Portuguese still have a culture of great kiosks. You know, and you spend time in Lisbon. There are kiosks yeah. everywhere, and they're full of French and English language and German, and of course Spanish, and of course all of the titles uh, from from the you know, from from the Portuguese world as well. And so there, there there was something interesting in that period. I think during the pandemic, just to have a human experience, going to a kiosk, being able to pick things up, um, and and so just there, I I was really impressed by the newspaper Expresso. Uh, their supplement that they put out as well. Again, it's another model, not you know, not too far off um, from uh, from what Die Zeit is. It's, you know, it's a weekly newspaper, also with having that this wonderful supplement as well. Which leads nicely onto the idea of you know where where do we buy magazines and that and that is that is you know what 
since I moved into retail, I've had I've seen much more close up the the problems of distribution and retail, and we've talked about it many a times. I talked we, that's when we last saw each other in Zurich. And um, what do you have a solution to that? Do you have a a, a plan to launch kiosks across the world? Well, we're we're trying. Uh with with kiosks in, in our own little way, and I can come back to that in a moment. But sometimes I wonder, Jeremy, do we have to go in? Do we have to venture into a world where everything is it becomes very unfashionable, but everything is vertically integrated again? I, I oftentimes, uh, you know, I'm out for whatever a run or a walk, and I think, you know, should we be looking at buying our own printing press? I know it sounds crazy, but should we have our own press? And and will we move into a place where we, we're completely vertically integrated? That we we may, we may not have the forest not making our own paper, but are we printing? And you know we look after a lot of logistics ourselves, uh, or have we have very very much closer partners than we might have had before. Uh, and and then also I think about you know, getting copies into people's hands. Now of course yes, you know people can be on social channels and they can promote, and then hopefully people will go and sample and and purchase. But you know there's a lot of people who just like going. To a newsstand, flipping and 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 just to or, and to flick through a title, and to smell it and to experience it, and then they might come back to it uh, on Saturday, and then choose to 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 purchase, uh, or they might pick it up in that moment uh, and and walk out of the store with it. And I think there are a lot of people like that. And so uh, again, in this world of subscriptions and everyone so focused on on building subs, there has to be that moment of sampling uh, as well. And that's where we need strong retailers and retailers where there is yeah a little bit i know what i'm going to get um and and there and all the predictability that comes with good retail and also all of that element of, of surprise uh, at at the same time so one thing you know of course we have um 10 now 11 retail outlets um around the world uh, we've we've tried uh something in hong kong uh with with a partnership with a with a wonderful magazine and retail um, experience at Hong Kong Airport. Of course, it's closed at the moment, um, but it, it will come back. Um, and since I saw you, we just did something in Zurich um, in the food hall of a, of a department store. So in the center of Zurich at mm-hmm. Yelmoli, which is, it's you know, it, you could say it's a little bit like a, it's a bit like a Selfridges. It's, it's a classic department store that has, that still has a proper food hall with a butcher and a greengrocer and you can buy wine and everything. And there was a kiosk there before, which probably had transformed into a place like many kiosks it was uh full of phone chargers and and uh you know refills for e-cigarettes and all of the things that kiosks tend to sell now and very little place for for news um be it newspapers or magazines and no books and the good thing is there's a visionary ceo there and she lives not too far from where our space is in zurich and she said hey what about we do this in our store and so out went the old kiosk in came uh our, our setup with a lot of things that you're doing and we like doing, and it's it's great if people come into the space and um, and and they buy one of our products. But you know, we have I don't know what another two hundred different titles. I want them to come in and buy Christoph's new food magazine, and so they can come in and get the Economist, and then get the New Yorker, and they can get Der Spiegel and Stern and whatever else they want it to buy. It's a proper newsstand, and I'm hoping um, because the footprint is tiny. It's it's like it's exactly what we think about. We think about a kiosk that maybe. Maybe there is room for this, not in every store, not in every city, but uh, maybe we can make something of it. And whether we finance it ourselves or we do it in partnership with people, uh, but I, we need that. I don't think it can all be an experience of just going onto a screen and then, oh, I mean, I can maybe I can flip through it, I get a thumbnail to look at it. It's just, we know it's not the same. 
No, it's not. And I, I mean, we 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 see it every day uh, in our shop here in London. It's uh, there's, there's you know we you can cut the customers in various different you know sections and whatever. But they're fundamentally there are two types. There's the type running in to pick up a latest copy of magazine X, whatever it is, and there's the other who's, who come in. They might know they want a copy or a copy of Monocle or whatever, but they're there to spend three quarters of an hour browsing, looking. And then they'll pick up a pack and off they go. And they're very happy. And that's that serendipity of finding stuff that, that is so important. And, yeah, and, and there's so many interesting things that happen at retail. Those, those, you know, those, those tricks that, yeah, we can try them digitally and you can have you know, recommendations and suggestions. And if you bought this, you might like that. But then there's just those very simple things, as you know. A new edition of something comes out and you just stack it high by the cash desk. Ah, I've got to have it. There's there's a certain urgency to that. There's these very simple, you know, stack them high, watch them fly tricks that continue to work. And I see that, I, I see that on the weekends. Uh, you know, when when we have Die Zeit, we have the FT weekend. Um, you know, the Swiss newspapers. You know, there was a period where we would just sort of have them by the door, neatly stacked in the magazine rack, and then we just started putting them on benches when people come and get their coffee in our cafe in Zurich and they just yeah they might have only taken the NZZ am Sonntag but then yeah they they actually just they decide to sample the FT weekend oh by the way there's a copy of Confect there as well and then we've got uh, Christoph's Wochenmarkt magazine and and you leave with a that's the great experience yeah. leaving yeah. with a, an armful of, of print now uh, I know that uh, as well as these very big august titles that you're talking about you've also been very supportive of a lot of smaller independent magazines and a, and a lot of people listening to this podcast will be f- f- either f- obsessed by or part of that world. And I wondered if somebody's um, looking to start their own magazine now, uh, probably on a much smaller scale than what you did 15 years ago, what one bit of advice would you offer them? Goodness. Well, I think one thing that has happened, and it's not just when we think about the person who is maybe sitting at their desk in another job, but has this desire to go and launch their own print title. I think it's also happening when we can look at some of the biggest brands in the world that people have forgotten about the relationship with advertisers. So I think we see everyone's talking subscription, 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 and that's great. And that is, it's it's wonderful what the New York Times and many others have done. But I, I really believe finding and developing a relationship with with great brand partners and whether they're just buying the outside back cover uh, or or whether it means that they are a partner through distribution and also because you might develop branded content for them. I think this is an area where so many companies are now looking for a very specific, interesting niches because everyone knows that you can go and blast it out digitally, no problem, and you can do all the programmatic you want. So that's that's covered. But then if I think about people who have a, a really a, a deep interest in cooking uh, in Puglia, uh, and and you believe that's a, a twice-year magazine. I also believe there's probably, whether it's an airline, um, whether it is a tourism organization, uh, whether it's even a fashion brand, uh, that that could be interested in that. So what I'm getting at is I wouldn't just worry, I wouldn't just concern myself in developing a plan where it's only focused on the cover price and building up subscriptions. And, and oddly, I think as well, a lot of people think, you know, advertising bad. I have to have, you know, difficult conversations with brands and, and I'm selling myself short, et cetera. But I think I've always believed one of the great things about a magazine is mm-hmm. that friction between great editorial, outstanding advertising, uh, and, and also co-created content today as well. That's what makes it, it it's so rich. And because we still don't get those adjacencies digitally. Of course, the small screen, the big screen 
does get better. But it's it's still we're still not there yet uh, when it when it comes to having that run of advertising. You, you don't get an experience digitally. Even thinking back to why did why did the tablet fail? Because when when at least certainly in the glossy space, because you know you open up the gentlewoman. And it's page after page. It's the new Lueva campaign, and then it's the new Celine campaign, and then it's you know three spreads of Chanel, whatever it may be. And that that's it's curious, isn't it? But if I you know I'm looking at my my mobile here, you still can't deliver that, and and that is and and so and then also but, they, but that's exactly why these brands are still advertising in print, and that that's and absolutely right, and that's also why you you could argue that sure there are lots of great films and and mini docs and all kinds of things which the luxury goods companies make to of course you know live in the world of a of a screen, but I I would say that you know to this day uh, the luxury goods business uh, still hasn't found a comfortable relationship with digital. They they still feel much more comfortable in print. Uh, one final question. So we're we're celebrating fifteen years. What fifteen years time? What then? Well, What's gonna, <laughs> fifteen years time. I mean, we we could be in the place uh, where yeah, where you and I are standing uh, by the printing press in overalls and 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 and, and, and watching us make this uh, this title ourselves because uh, too many printers have gone under. Uh, hope, hopefully not. Um, if I look out uh, next five, next ten years, um, listen, I, we would like to we would like to be become better at at subscriptions, but also the, of the physical kind. That you know, if if we can't reach you in a certain corner of the world, that uh, the world of, of logistics sorts themselves out, uh, and and we're 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 you know we're certainly. Um, we have the ability with our partners to get titles to you around the world. And we're going to get titles to you around the world because hopefully you were so seduced by it because you you saw us at Atlanta Airport uh, or you, you stumbled across uh, us uh, you know, when you were in Johannesburg, wherever, wherever you might have been, and maybe in one of our own retail partnership environments. Um, I think that would be great. Uh, I would like this venture, um, being you know sitting in our studios here, uh, to even go further with with audio. Uh, I wonder, you know, do we split this up? Is there a music channel at some point, and then something which is much more only documentary and news based? Uh, and you know, I don't know, is there is there a a kids outlet uh, potentially? One thing we are thinking about is what do we do uh, for children? Um, so there's a few thoughts around that. And of course, many people have ventured into that territory. We've looked at some interesting models elsewhere that are not being done in English language. Uh, so we think about that. Um, and then books. I mean, right now we're only doing, not only, but we do four books a year. And I, I would love to be in a position mm-hmm. uh, that we're, you know, are we doing eight, nine titles? Are we doing fiction? Uh, yeah. <laughs> so I think there's a there's a world of our imprint that um, we're only just getting underway um, at, at, at the moment. Um, and that, you know, that, that, will be, that will be enough. We've had some approaches about, fi- i.e. film in the sense of people who have come across stories that we've done, you know, do these become documentaries, etc.? Not, not a priority for for today. I think there's enough to be getting on with. Uh, still, just doing the the good old magazines and newspapers that we do at the moment. Tyler, thank you. Thanks, Jeremy. That's it for this special episode. The 15th anniversary issue of Monocle is now available from the Mag Culture Shop. Huge thanks to Holly and Steph at Monocle for their help and to Tyler Brulé. See you next time. <laughs>